TED Audio Collective. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until that presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case. Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com, designed for work. The best place to see stars is at home with Prime Video. Get everything included with Prime, like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, starring Donald Glover and Maya Erskine. Rent or buy hits like Mean Girls, starring Renee Rapp. Or add-on channels like Max for the HBO original Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David. You've never seen so many stars in one place. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. Prime membership not required to rent or buy. Prime membership required for add-on subscriptions. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Hello and welcome to the TED interview. I'm Chris Anderson. Today we have something pretty special. It's a chance to talk with a man who arguably has the single most challenging job in the entire world. Dr. Ashraf Ghani has been a distinguished anthropologist. He's worked at the World Bank. And now he is the president of Afghanistan. So this country, you know, I had the great good fortune to spend several years there as a, as a boy between the ages of 10 and 13 and then again at 18 at a time when the country was at peace. My father was an ophthalmologist working there. And um, seeing this nation with its beautiful mountains, its verdant valleys and extraordinary people, it really, it, it, it will never leave my head. It is such a special place. It's been absolutely heartbreaking to see that it has been wracked by one war after another. And to run that country, I mean, that is just an impossible job. And yet, this man, Dr. Ghani, as I think you're, you're here, he, he doesn't sound like your typical politician. I mean, there's almost a philosopher spirit in there. He actually gave a TED Talk in 2005 on how to rebuild a better state. And of course, he's trying to put some of those ideas into practice now. Whenever I have the honor of speaking with Dr. Ghani, I learn something new. I heard his nuanced thoughts on what to make of this two decades old war that has cost so much in both blood and treasure, and how he handles delicate relationships with the US, with Pakistan, with his political rivals. Um, but most of all, he teaches me how the deep thousand year traditions of a country torn by war might actually have a lot to teach us about making peace. So this interview was recorded before a live virtual audience at TED 2020, which is going on now and into July. Let's begin. Dr. Ghani, assalamu alaikum. Thank you for coming and spending this, this time with us. Uh, you are facing issues that almost no one else on the planet is, is having to face. Help us understand your country, Dr. Ghani. The New York Times in a recent article described Afghanistan in, in this language the impoverished Central Asian country, once unfamiliar to many Americans, now symbolizes endless conflict, foreign entanglements, and an incubator of terrorist plots. How would you describe Afghanistan? The New York Times catches one side of the story. Let me tell you the other side. 
Since I've become president, I've been 89 times to the provinces. Before Corona, I averaged seeing 4,000 of my fellow citizens a month. What do I hear from all our friends, from all walks of life, men and women, girls and boys? A quest for normalcy. We are striving to be normal. It's not we who are abnormal. It's the circumstances in which we've been caught. We are hit by turbulence, left, right, and center. And we are attempting to carve a way forward to overcome the types of turbulence that an interaction with each other provide an environment of continuous uncertainty. So our goal is to overcome this. And I think with the will of the people, we will be able to. May I tell you some stories? Please. 19 years ago, when I returned after 24 years, I couldn't find five people to write. We had lost our language, all our languages. Today, in poetry, in prose, novels, to penny novels, to literary criticism, the country is vibrant. It's one of the greatest conversations that is happening and people are engaging each other. Women, we endured a gender segregation like none, but today the women of Afghanistan speak for themselves. They are ministers, they are ambassadors, they are in all walks of life. But particularly what moves me is young girls. I, before Corona, I used to see them every day. And you know what they would say? Half of them want to be president of Afghanistan. That's a different Afghanistan. And this quest for normalcy is what I'm determined to put into practice and create the conditions. There's a lot that's happening positively. It's what is characteristic of our people is the will to overcome the past and to move forward. Poverty is real, inequality is real, but we also have a very determined population that embraces the notion of the republic and the notion of citizenship. Well, I, I spent several years in Afghanistan as a, as a child and, and um, certainly experienced that determination of there's a depth, a real depth to so many Afghans. It was really striking. But this war, Dr. Ghani, it's been 19 years, I guess, since this war began. It was waged as a response to a terrorist incident in which something like 3,000 people died. Uh, the wars cost $2 trillion, um, perhaps 100,000 lives, mostly Afghan. Has it been worth it? Well, the first issue is that the cost of the war is vastly exaggerated. Uh, Professor Anthony Kortzman has written an excellent paper called The True Cost of War. The Afghan war has become an omnibus under which everything from Navy to the Air Force to the other is costed. But the cost in life and treasure has been very real to the United States. Fortunately, since I've become president, the cost in life is under 100. Well, it used to be over 2,300. And the cost in treasure, again, has come down. 
let's leave the judgment of whether it was worth it to the historians, because I don't want to discuss the past. But, um, but the, the cost, moment, I mean, there's been a hundred American lives lost, but but many, many Afghan lives continue no, to be course, lost. I'm bringing, I was bringing it to the American perspective. No, we, we are the ones who are dying. And because of that, I'm determined to move forward with peace and the stars are finally being aligned. The war will go on unless we find a political solution. Keeping the war going on does not require more than $60 million a year. But the real courage, the real imagination is to bring peace. Uh, and at this moment, we should be really focused on finding a political solution to end this specter uh, that is haunting our lives. So the, the US and the Taliban reached this provisional agreement in, in February to reduce violence. Um, was that a productive agreement? And do you see it leading to this agreement between the government of Afghanistan, the people of Afghanistan, and the Taliban in a way that can bring actual peace? Well, first of all, let me again say thank you to the US for the sacrifice and blood and treasure. Veterans, They've lived with memories of this country, and it really, I'm moved to tears when they tell me uh, they've left a piece of their heart in Afghanistan. And to the Gold Star families who've lost their loved ones. At this moment, U.S. and interest Afghanistan and perspectives are aligned. Because the end state, the ultimate goal, is a sovereign, democratic, united Afghanistan at peace with itself in the world. Within that, Taliban are a fact of life of Afghanistan. You cannot do away with it by force, nor can they do away with the security forces and the will of the people of Afghanistan. So we need to find a political solution. This environment, I think we're moving forward to creating the conditions for a direct dialogue uh, between the Taliban and us. And this phase will hopefully move us uh, to an Afghan-owned and Afghan-led peace process where we need to make peace. Uh, the reduction of violence is had two aspects. In terms of massive conflict, that has been reduced. But the cost in lives is still very high. Uh, on average, 30 to 35 casualties a day from our security forces up to, to 70 fatalities and up to 70 casualties. So it's imperative, particularly in the environment of Corona, that we go for a humanitarian ceasefire. The condition that Taliban prisoners be released and our prisoners be released is moving forward. I'm hopeful that soon we'll begin direct talks. What is at stake if the remaining US forces are withdrawn before you have a peace agreement in place? So the number of U.S. forces is now down to about 8,600. Uh, the question is not what will happen to us. The U.S. should consider what will happen to it in terms of the threat of ongoing threat of terrorism. We do not comment on the sovereign decisions of the United States. I asked President Trump two years ago that any schedule of withdrawal that he chooses, of course, is acceptable to us. The support structures are important, 
a gradual, systematic, condition-based approach would be in both our interest, but should that happen? Of course, the responsibility for, for defending Afghanistan and for securing it lies on our shoulders, and I'm delighted that every single member of our security forces is a volunteer. There's no one conscripted, there's no one forced, and our special forces are second to none in the region, and our Air Force has been tripled. Uh, we'll be able to maintain ourselves, but it could change, it could adversely affect the chances of peace, and I hope that we will be able to move forward so it is a systematic process rather than a sudden uh, process. Many Afghans, I believe, um, including you, uh, reject the Taliban's strident interpretation of Islam. I mean, when values are that different, is, is there any real prospect of long-term stable peace? Well, again, I hope you remember President Lincoln's statement. A woman was criticizing him for making peace. And he said, he said, you're making peace with your enemies. He said, isn't the best way of turning the enemies into friends? Our society is a consensus on making peace. Our values need to be reframed from war to peace. In the environment of war, values become more pronounced towards violence. So here, peace must be mapped properly. I've spent a lifetime studying peace processes, over a hundred agreements in preparation. There are good peace processes and they're bad ones. Process matters. The key is what's the goal and how to reach agreement. And then to give the implementation sufficient time the key to future values is removal of arms from dictation. Once we interact, I think we will be able to renew our bonds because in the past also we've had periods of radical uh, versus tolerant. Our tradition, you know, is Maulana of Rum, famously known as Rumi. And uh, he has a verse that I'd like to cite. He says, with will, fire becomes sweet water, and without will, even water becomes fire. This is not easy, but it is necessary. And the last issue, who's the winner of the war? There is no winner. But who's the winner of the peace? The people of Afghanistan and the people of the region. We should all acquire the humility to say that we will put our people first. You know us, we have several thousand years of ways of mediation, uh, arbitration coming together. There's a large repertoire for peacemaking, and I hope we can mo uh, mobilize it and use it. Yes, there is this extraordinary tradition in Afghanistan of face-to-face -face meetings, Jirga uh, meetings. I, when I had the great honor to stay in your home eight years ago when I was in Kabul. The centerpiece of your home was this beautiful area of a rectangled area with a, with a lovely carpet and, and back support so that 20 people could kind of sit in a circle facing each other. And I, I witnessed you having these face-to-face -face conversations with people, some of whom disagreed with you, some of whom supported you. The power of that was extraordinary to witness. Do, do you 
Can you see a time in, in the next three to five years, say, where you, you will sit in a circle face to face with Taliban, perhaps, and try to bridge and, and get to a point of, of understanding? Is that imaginable? Absolutely. Not within three years. I hope within three months. We are determined to move forward with this opportunity. This is a window. It's a narrow window. It can shut, but we want to open it. And what you saw in my house, I've done in presidential grounds with thousands of people. Prior to Corona, I saw about 4,000 people of Kabul to discuss the city of Kabul and the province of Kabul. For six weeks, uh, 600 to 800 people were coming. We are an egalitarian people. We cannot be dictated. We can only be persuaded. And persuasion means that all policies have to be done from ground up and then top down. That's the combination. Things that are borrowed uncritically will only produce a counter reaction. We have a saying, you can persuade an Afghan to go to hell, but you cannot compel him to go to heaven. He has to be persuaded. <laughs> final series of the TV show Homeland was located in Afghanistan and featured tense negotiations involving the U.S., uh, the Afghan government, the Taliban, Pakistan. <laughs> uh, did you see that series and did it bear any relation to reality? Unfortunately not. I'm a compulsive reader, but I don't watch. Uh, <clears throat> my 16-hour days don't allow. Uh, but let me take the question. Uh, peacemaking is no longer just an amateur art form. It really has become a discipline. Two of my friends that have been working very closely, William Ori uh, and Jonathan Powell, have done an enormous amount to turn this into discipline. Uh, the German Berkhoff Foundation, there are others, uh, in particular a recent book on uh, Kissinger's diplomacy, distinctively. Uh, William Uri has come with two concepts. One is called BATNA, or the best alternative to negotiation. We need to understand that if you reduce the option of war, peacemaking will move forward. The second is called the zone of possible agreement. We have to have an approach to bridging. Uh, and there is work at the table, there's work off the table. The work of the table means bringing the region, the international community, other key stakeholders. My own uh, take from this is if we define the objectives instead of moving blind forward to have what is called the end state or the objective, then we can avoid a lot of those tensions and others because the classic was the act of improvisation. Uh, this is not jazz. It is discipline. We need to, to have a lot more uh, discipline so the instruments come together and the voices could come around. Speaking of which, you've fought two uh, disputed elections with Abdullah Abdullah. 
uh, he is now leading the High Council of National Reconciliation, I guess playing a, a, a key role in the negotiation with the Taliban. Have you been able to build a productive relationship with him? Absolutely. We have a uh, saying in Pashto, says, Khulaham kaladam bala, says your tongue is either a fortress or a curse. Maulana puts it better, O tongue, you're in endless treasure, O tongue, you're also in endless disease. Uh, I've never responded negatively to Dr. Abdullah, either in the course of 2014 or 2019 campaign or during the years. We have resumed a very productive relationship and we're meeting with mutual respect and courtesy. It's also the question that now is not the agreement of the government of national unity. Dr. Abdullah has no role uh, directly in running the government, but peace is an area of agreement with us because the two key parameters are, one, we should secure the participation of the Taliban within the Republic. Second, elections must be the ultimate determinant of the future uh, of leadership in Afghanistan. Dr. Abdullah and I share common ground and we are working well together. Can you help us understand um, the key issues at stake in your relationship with Pakistan? Uh, specifically, do you feel that they're doing enough to put pressure on the Taliban to properly engage in the peace process? Well, until the visit of the Chief of Staff of Pakistan's Army, General Bajwa, to Afghanistan, there were uncertainties. And the past, I don't want to discuss, everybody knows. And mutual suspicion, etc., etc. Uh, now we think we are converging on a shared vision. And the first component of that is that a stable, democratic Afghanistan, and hopefully prosperous, is necessary for Pakistan to be stable and democratic and peaceful. Uh, second, that ways of the past to think that Afghanistan is a part of strategic debt or uh, a satellite of Pakistan are not possible, not feasible. So here, convergence on a sovereign, democratic, constitutional Iran Afghanistan is important. We, on our part, are clear We've, I've doc articulated the new doctrine of our foreign policy. I call it multi-alignment. Maximum number of friends, minimum number of opponents. We don't want to give part of the disputes of our other partner. We will not permit our soil to be used against others, but we will also expect that others will not use their soil against us. I think that Pakistan's internal reflections make this a possibility. The Taliban have frankly been a cost to Pakistan without considerable benefits. And at this moment, the other issue is that regions develop not countries. So India is going to be having a very important issue for our economic well-being in we for linking Pakistan to Central Asia in Caucasus. The areas of convergence are becoming much greater than divergence. In words, we've made a lot of progress. We hope that this will translate into a very positive role. That positive role is what we ask for because competition 
among nations and particularly post-corona environment and the environmental crisis that South Asia faces is going to be a lose-lose. We're going to have questions from the audience in one minute, but you mentioned coronavirus there again. Talk about what you're wrestling with there, because um, in a country with with a lot of poverty, the, the decision on how much you shut down, you know, that's a harder call to make than, than in a richer country. How do you come up with the right strategy to fight this? What have you been doing and, and what do you need from the rest of the world to help that fight be better? Well, the first is we were one of the first countries to become fully aware. And this is really thanks to our Emirati friends. In January, uh, Sheikh Tahnun shared a briefing. I was giving a keynote address in Abu Dhabi. He was the first individual to use the term the corona economy and had full analysis developed in terms of scenarios. So when the first cases in Iran happened, we prepared. Uh, We were having from February 24, the first cases, uh, to March 21st, up to 10,000 people a day coming from Iran. There was a panic among Afghans in Iran, so they rushed. We moved in to analyze the phases. So there are five phases, awareness, diffusion, adversity, relief, recovery. The exact timing, of course, was unknown, but we responded with lockdowns, which brought both structural hardship and situational. But compared to our all others, total deaths have been 491 until now. Uh, in the phases of diffusion were slow. We had very little till the third week of May. The last week of May, adversity started. So now we are in a phase Uh, The other part of it is we started distributing bread for the first time in our history to all our cities. Now we are doing a major program shortly of distributing a package of basic food to almost 90% of the Afghan population in several phases. Affordability is an issue for us, but in terms of what we ask, it's knowledge. It's sharing of experience and from the philanthropic community, it's sponsor an Afghan family and work with us through knowledge networks because what makes us special for a study? One, we are at the gateway to Central Asia, uh, to, to the subcontinent, Pakistan and India. So in terms of diffusion, it's not a nation, it's an entire continent that is at issue. Second, the number above 60 is only 3% of the population. So we have one of the youngest populations. And then the urban is about 30%, rural is 70%. This profile, I think, would allow for the type of working through solutions. Our main challenge is going to be winter. If Corona continues, to the winter, then given our small houses and our traditions of thousands of years of eating food together, breaking bread together, will become an obstacle. So working through particularly women and women-led households 
and working with us globally to be able to mobilize for this. Our society is mobilized with enormous generosity. People have really shared half of the bread in the private sector. It's been marvelous in terms of both contributing to the market stability, but also uh, with that deep sense of charity. If it could be joined with regional planning and global coordination, particularly when the vaccine comes, that we are not forgotten because we will not be able to pay early. I'm hearing you say there could be a national strategy in response to COVID-19. I think there might be a few countries who might want to borrow you for uh, a few months, Dr. Ghani. We're going to go to uh, we're going to we're going to go to uh, questions from the community. Let's get the first one. Okay, Dr. Ghana, the peace process is a triangulation between your government, Taliban, and the U.S. But others have polit- economic and political interests in Afghanistan. China, for instance, what is the role of China in Afghanistan today? The answer is this: the coalition for war was limited. I hope to put the broadest coalition for peace. Everybody can be a winner in peace. China is a very significant neighbor. We have a short, a small border, but very significant. China's market is essential for us. Thanks to Uzbekistan opening to us, which I'd like to thank President Mirzaev in particular, we now reach China in a week. It used to take us three months. In terms of investment, Afghanistan wants to be a location for investment. China should they wish, in terms of the peace process, we would like the discussions of the peace not to take place in one country, but to move so we can have the maximum number of stakeholders. The most significant thing is what I put to President Xi during the Shanghai conference, and he immediately endorsed it. We want to be a platform for regional and global cooperation, not a site for rivalries. In China, lastly, is a major stakeholder in containing terrorism, because the threat is felt real uh, and it's an area of cooperation. We'll take one more community question. President Ghani, thank you for the foregrounding that peacemaking is a discipline. Can you share more about how every human being can actively practice the discipline of peacemaking in our daily lives and in our nations? Absolutely, because the first thing is mutual respect. Two types of conversations have been differentiated by uh, Professor Argyris, one of the key practitioners of this. One is called type one listening, where one just repeats one's position and doesn't hear the other side. Type two is to really have a conversation where we listen. What is in shortage in our daily interactions is capacity to listen. We talk too much, we listen too little. And this is crucial. Second is our basic humanity. When all forms of differences are socially and culturally constructed, there's no such thing uh, as ethnic or linguistic or racial ground. Franz Boas, the founder of cultural anthropology, demonstrated to measuring heads and noses that migrants, Italians and Irish, against whom there was enormous prejudice, were not different. So it's important. Second, hierarchy and participation need to be balanced. A lot of things need to be done by community. I'm delighted, for instance, that as an architect of a program called National Solidarity, now the Citizen Charter, 
Afghan villages now have 50-50. 50% of our village councillors are led by women, 50 by men. Uh, Gender is an extremely important area because women bring a new perspective, an enriched perspective, and we are complementary to each other. It's finding common ground that allows us to live because all a lot of times, particularly within ideological communities, whether religious or secular, small differences are exaggerated to such an extent that makes hearing each other impossible. Now I hear the word tribes, mutually exclusive through their digital systems applied to the United States. It's such a tragedy. We need to uh, move forward and come together. Dr. Ghani, as a boy, I remember just the beauty of Afghanistan. I remember walking by the incredible blue lakes of Bandi Amir, skipping stones, because there's all this flat slate there. Um, so many deep memories. There are parts of Afghanistan that uh, tourists have no idea about. Is there any prospect that in the next years that they will have a chance to visit again in peace and confidence that they will just have a beautiful experience in a beautiful land? I very much hope so. Uh, During my six years, I've had a two-hour break, and that was in Bandi Amir. Uh, And you know, you remember the warm springs too, because it's a combination of intensely cold water plus these warm springs that makes it a delight. Uh, we are expanding, and one of my quests is for carbon trading to reforest Afghanistan. I think we could go uh, probably to up to 500 million trees. That would be an enormous change in the lives of people and those people who are part of the initiative of one trillion trees, the firms and others we invite them. But also in Kabul and Parwan, in Herat, in Kandar, and others, we have done an intense work to renew our cultural heritage. You remember Pahman, the valley about 20 kilometers west of Kabul? Mm. Its villas, its structures from 1880 to 1930 were ground to dust. Its gardens had been destroyed. We've restored everything, and now it's a national park. We are expanding this, and my goal is to create one national park in every single uh, of the districts of the country. I've been to every single province of Afghanistan, and I'm moved by the sheer beauty of what's there, and we hope to share it. And can you comment briefly on what the business opportunities are in Afghanistan? What kinds of investment or entrepreneurial activity would you welcome? Well, first is the power sector. Pakistan needs probably around 50,000 megawatts of of power. This is World Bank calculations for its 100th anniversary to move from a lower middle income to an upper middle income country. In Central Asia is the key. So power, we've created all the opportunities for the private sector to be in transmission, in production, in distribution. We also have this amazing potential, 220,000 megawatts of solar, 80,000 megawatts of wind, and 23,000 megawatts of hydro, coal, we are not touching at this moment. So power sector, second, or pipelines. 
natural gas going to India is crucial, not only just Pakistan, but beyond to, to India. Getting here, working on insurance and guarantees is the crucial enabling mechanism. The second area is mining. Uh, we have the largest iron deposits, one of the largest copper deposits. Uh, in gold, we'll be a player. In talk, we can be one of the 10 players. We have over a billion tons of marble of 40 colors. Precious stones, again. Uh, gas is beginning to look very good. Oil could be sufficient. So small and medium type companies that take risks and look for high rewards. Agriculture is beginning. We have just surpassed $1 billion in export. I was able to double our exports. We have created now the infrastructure and in the systems. And equally, the digital economy is the future. So digital services, we are focusing completely on, on the new economy to be able to, to create jobs. And as I said, the other is environment. Environmental crisis in South Asia, in Central Asia and West Asia is not a warning. It's a forthcoming reality. Water in water management is going to be an extremely big issue of coordination. And the other is the railways. Transport will be crucial because we missed the 19th century transport revolution. We privatized the fiber optics. We are looking every area where regional, national, and global firms will come. Last point is that don't look at the Afghan market. Look at it uh, as a platform for regional cooperation because we have one of the lowest tariff for our exports to China, to India, to Europe, and others. The key is value chains and supply chains. And you have one of the youngest populations on earth with willingness to work extremely hard for good money. <laughs> <laughs> and an entrepreneurial population to boot that you understand. <laughs> Dr. Ghani, I thank you for this, this vision. It's an exciting vision of what Afghanistan could be. I'm, I've just, whenever I hear you, I'm struck both by your eloquence and, and your courage. You know, you've, you've lived all these years um, under threat of assassination. And uh, I, I honestly don't know how you find the strength to do what you do but thank you for what you're doing. And you now we wish you better times ahead, sir. Well, thank you. Uh, for me, it's not courage because I don't, know, I don't know how to define it. You know, when they sent rockets, I opened my chest and I said, I'm not wearing a bulletproof. That was my inauguration. And it became a national gesture. Uh, what I don't give to is fear. I have no fear. I've lived a life. I've lived multiple lives, and this life is dedicated to service. What inspires me is the decency, the incredible generosity, the sense of appreciation. When a young girl looks at you and says, you've made it possible for me to dream to be president, how, what price can you put on that? When a widow embraces you, and says, I've lost three sons, but I'll give the other two. 
We are a hopeful society. What makes me wake up with hope, no matter what the previous day has been, is that I know I have a master. My masters are the people of Afghanistan, for they are the ones to be appreciated. Okay, that's a wrap for today. Thank you to our podcast team. Our editor is Grace Rubenstein. Our podcast producer is Kim Niederfein-Peterser. And our production manager is Anna Phelan. Our show is mixed by David Herman. And our theme music is by Alison Leighton-Brown. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>